the the ultimate point of the of of UKIP's push to do this not only was just based on immigration, but it's purely based on racism. Right. It's it's the old English for the English. You know, they felt you know, and this is this goes all the way back to the eighties, even further than that. Uh, that when you had a when you had a migration of those from South Asia, uh, India, Pakistan, uh, Bengalis moving to England, it, basically England was becoming less white, and and that angered people who are English. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. My name is Mahin, and along with me today are my co-hosts, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Sim. Today we've got a very smart guy on the podcast, all the way from Philadelphia, Dr. Jerry Hyonis. Jerry, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, he's got a he got a PhD from Temple University and a bachelor's from St. Joseph's, and currently a assistant prof at uh, Widener University. Um, so I know you're pretty busy and. You know, we just reached out to you a couple of weeks ago just to talk about some of the economic issues in the world, some, among some other things. But first of all, we just uh, played a song uh, you put out a few years ago. It's kind of a side interest. Tell us a little bit about your music your endeavors. Assalamu uh, alaikum. Uh, well, first off, it's it's a pleasure to, to talk to you guys. It's not it's it's not like that. Don't worry. About, don't worry about my time. Uh, yeah. Uh, in regards to the music, I mean, I I mean, I'm I'm 34 now. I've been playing guitar since I've been, I think. 10, 11, 12 years old. Uh, and actually, many years ago, back in high school, I used to play in a death metal band and uh, did a little bit of touring. And then after a while, I, uh, I got tired of uh, playing with bands and got tired of playing the electric guitar. And so I just started picking up the acoustic and learning how to play uh, solo. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's nothing you know uh, that professional. I play shows every once in a while, but... Uh, I usually just record and and, and stuff. It's, it's a side thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, Jerry. Everyone's looking at me in our studio here because uh, I used to be a big metalhead back in high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I, wor- I started with the the Bay Area thrash bands and then oh, of work my way up to anything more louder. All the way up, <laughs> all the way into Europe. I had to <laughs> had to keep looking. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I was I was very much in the underground scene uh, yeah. for, for quite a for quite a long time. Uh, and then, you know, when I when I embraced Islam, uh, it wasn't necessarily an issue of music, but I had to become a little bit more selective. Exactly, for, uh, it's all about the message, right? It's all about the message. Yeah, and, and you, you, you know, I, I try to keep it uh, as as less haram as possible. I guess exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Same here, man. That was like mid '90s metal, was it? What's that? Not 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 to date you, but like, is this like mid '90s or so? We talking about being a metalhead? <laughs> me, me, me. I'm 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 balding and gray. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, that was in high school. Yeah, so we're talking like mid late '90s, early 2000s. Um, you know, when I was in college, and after a while, I just I didn't have time, and you know, people move around, and you know, being in a band is is a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just yeah, forget it. Yeah, but I, uh, I just remember all the, uh, the the look, man. The the flannel shirt with the t shirt underneath, like Court Slayer, and then you got the chain <laughs> and the airwalks. <laughs> that was like the look, right? And the long hair and, and the and the new metal stuff. But yeah, like the Bay Area thrash guys are good. The Swedish death metal. 
you know, and then you know stuff from Tampa Bay, the old school death metal, Cannibal Corpse, Morbid <laughs> Angel. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to listen to all of it. I still, I still do every once in a while, but again, I, I'm very sure. selective on what and what I don't listen to. Can you talk to us a little bit about the piece we just uh, played for you? Hey, what was your inspiration uh, yeah, behind uh, it? By the, by the cover of Night, um, a lot of my songs, you know, they, they, it's weird when you're an instrumental musician. It's, it's, it's kind of odd to give titles to songs because there's no lyrics. I literally could just say this is song one, song two, song three. Um, but most of the titles, and I guess you could say the inspirations of the songs, are usually either based on kooky jokes, inside jokes with friends, or uh, <laughs> Islam, or, or yeah, or Dune. And sometimes the Dune and the Islam songs kind of uh, kind of mix over with the titles. People get uh, people get confused. With yeah, one. It, that one, for our that listeners one? who don't know Dune, uh, tell them a little bit about what the Dune oh, universe Dune, is. Uh, Dune is. Uh, you know, uh, the greatest book ever written by a human being. Okay, so I'm not lumping it in with the Quran. <laughs> I don't want that to, to happen. But uh, it's it's my favorite. It's my favorite book of all time um, by uh, by the great Frank Herbert. Uh, he wrote actually six books, and then his son started writing some additional books and all that. Uh, but but uh, it's 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 a great science fiction novel, space opera, uh, and it had a profound effect on me. Obviously, when I read it, because I I still read. I actually want to do a paper on the economics of Dune one day. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to use that as a, oh, a leading God. point to economics because Dune is very oh, resource-intensive. I mean, you could... Economics, psychology, sociology. In fact, uh, there the if you read the book, there is um, there's these people called the Fremen, who are the natives of this planet Dune, Arrakis who you find out historically uh, are called the Zen Sunni. And hmm. the reason why I said that is because Frank Herbert believed in the future that Buddhism and Islam eventually would merge into one religion. Um, so it's actually very fascinating. Wow. Very cool. So, like, you got your list as we uh, digress from the music and into economics. Uh, you started – you did your bachelor's in economics, right? Like what kind of inspired you to like study that? Um, I thought about – I was an economics major for like a semester and then I – I guess <laughs> I, I fell asleep in class a lot. So <laughs> how did you stay motivated? What what interested you about economics to keep pursuing? Well, well my, my degree at uh, – my bachelor's degree was um, in economics and philosophy. Uh, I originally started as an accounting major and I realized very quickly that I did not like accounting. Uh, I married an accountant, but I, I wasn't. I wasn't going to do it. Uh, to be to be completely frank with you, and, and most people know this about me by now, uh, it was motivated by the fact that I was a card carrying Marxist communist for about five six years. Um, so it was just natural for me to study economics, uh, and then eventually I, I uh, moved away from that. Alhamdulillah, but. Uh, yeah, I mean that was really the the motivation to learn about economics, and plus I had an economics class, and I and I tended to like it. I liked the analytical thinking. I liked the problem of human decision making and, and where it was going. But I mean, the main motivation as to you know, oh, I should study it more was was basically just because I was, you know, obsessed with Karl Marx at the time. Okay, and then you went on to like. You know, a lot of people get their bachelors and start working. You, did you go right into grad school right away, or did you take some time off yeah, to work? Uh, yeah, um, I went. I went literally right away uh, until I got my PhD. I never stopped going to school, which, when you think about it like that, it's quite institutional. But yeah, I, I, I had one or two interviews afterward. It didn't go very well. 
because I was an idiot. So I said, you know, I might as well go just straight into graduate school. Uh, and, and most PhD programs now have what they call an accelerated program, meaning there's no real reason to stop and get a master's and then apply to a PhD program. You go straight into the PhD program, you take a certain number of classes. I think I paid 150 bucks and then I was, uh, you know, I got a master's degree. And then, you know, you just keep going and you complete your, uh, you don't do a thesis because you're going to complete a, a, a dissertation. Uh, and then I got that. So, I mean, technically I got my master's at Temple in economics as well. I see, I see. Now, when you're doing like a PhD, my dad was working on a PhD for several years and, you know, yeah. um, know a lot, lot of family members. It seems like do you you have a area of focus, right? You have a thesis. That's something sure. when, when you when you started the program, did you have something in mind or was it more or less like, hey, I can't get a job, so let me just keep going to school and then yeah. I'll figure it out later? Like, well, what's the what's the thought process? Because you, you are committing to several years of more school, right? And no income. It's a little bit of a mix, right? Uh, well, I was I was working, you know, for the school. I had an assistantship, so I was TAing, I was teaching, I was in tutoring centers. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it was a mix of well, I can't get a job, I got to do something, uh, and also I, I wanted to do it anyway. Um, I, I I wanted to keep going further. Uh, all my you know all my favorite teachers were professors, and, and and the idea of academia was very alluring. And I think everyone that goes into a PhD program has delusions of grandeur in the beginning. Uh, I wanted to go into labor economics and, and kind of uh, a certain different direction. And afterward, I went somewhere completely different uh, than I ever thought I would. So. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, your motivation for going in and then the whole process of graduate school and a PhD program completely breaks you down and builds you back up and, and you end up usually, from what I've known from other people I've talked to as well, uh, you just, you know, you end up somewhere completely different. Uh, where is that somewhere different? You were saying you said you went completely somewhere different. Oh, oh yeah, well, I mean, my, my original going into it again, coming from this headspace of I'm going to be the next great Karl Marx or whatever. Uh, I wanted to focus on labor economics and, and, and doing some statistical data work. And then I found out I was terrible at statistics and data work, but I was actually very, very good at uh, theoretical modeling and mathematics. So in the end, I got you get two concentrations. One is in what we call development economics, mm -hmm. uh, which looks at developing economic systems. And then the other uh, was basically mathematical economics. And my dissertation topic was a mix. I, I did a... Uh, theoretical model of a uh, civil war conflict uh, based upon um, stuff that had happened in West Africa. Mm, so that's completely different than Marxist labor stuff that you know, I was going in. <laughs> yeah, man. So, it's all a learning experience. You just learn yourself more, right, throughout that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. And we were discussing earlier, too, of how uh, you also specialize in uh, uh, Islamic economics. And um, and how, and what would you find, um, just for our listeners, so they get a little bit of a... Uh, uh, a heads up on, on what Islamic economics is and how it works. Um, how was your approach to studying Islamic economics, like in difference to, you know, just institutionalized? Uh, um... Well, you know, well, I mean, obviously the interest is the, comes from the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm Muslim and I converted to Islam, so I slowly start to get, you know, as anyone, you know, not necessarily if you just convert, but, you know, when, when you start to look, deeper into your religion and I think also when you start to get older and mature when you have a family there's certain questions that you know you don't you know you don't get answers yeah. very often on you know uh, 
not that not that the the usual questions of backbiting and those kinds of aren't important, but you don't hear too many in depth uh, talks about you know buying a house, loans, <laughs> can I have a credit card? What about car? You know, what about taxes? What? So uh, I, I was naturally leaning towards that, and then being an economist and getting a degree in economics, it was natural that I wanted to see what had been uh, said and what were the debates. And um, I mean. But yeah, and, that, and that's and that's really where it went. Now, I, I should say that there is a difference between Islamic economics and Islamic finance yes. because there's a difference between economics and finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there, Islamic economics is a bit more. I hate to use the term meta. Uh, you know, how do we as Muslims make decisions? Why do we make them? Finance looks more at the nuts and bolts. Yeah. how you can how you can do these things um so i look at both but my my focus is a little bit more on the islamic economics and the islamic finance although i i, I still look at both what would you say is a primary difference from the capitalist economic system and the islamic economic system ah that's a very good question and it's one of my points of, of contention i have with the field um well first i mean i I should say this as a disclaimer, I really, really dislike the term Islamic economics, Islamic finance. Um, I've never been a fan of of branding Islam by, well, it's not economics, it's Islamic economics, and therefore it has a religious overtone. Uh, I I think it puts it in a box a little too much. I, I think Economics for the Muslim, finance for the Muslims is a little bit better. And what you'll notice is a lot of text that I, I run into about Islamic economics always starts off with this idea that you have on one extreme market-based capitalist economics. On another extreme, you have communist planned economic systems. And Islamic economics offers a third way. And, and I, I got to be frank, I've yet to see any convincing argument of that, uh, that somehow Islam, you know, the Qur'an and the Sunnah create an economic system that is completely different from capitalism or communism. Um, The Qur'an talks about individual decision-making in regards to morality from an economic standpoint. The, you know, the, the, the Hadith literature talks a lot about the nuts and bolts of contracts and what you can and cannot do. There is very little in the Qur'an and, and the Sunnah and the Ahadith literature about how do you create an economic system. Because the reality was an economic system was already there at the time, and they were just slowly modifying it. And there's been quite a number of, of books about the type of early style capitalism that existed in the Hejaz at the time. So, if, yeah. if I could specify a little bit, and Jerry, um, for example, in Islam, we we don't have like a fiat currency, right? We have... Uh, uh, that's not exactly true. Uh, this is, uh, again, this I, I think is um, uh, somewhat of a, of, of a misunderstanding. Uh, there, there, is, there is a notion in a certain segment of... Uh, of Islamic economic theory. And even though I just went into a whole thing about how much I don't like the term, it doesn't matter what I say, this is what it's called. So, yeah. you know, in this, this Islamic economics and Islamic finance, there is uh, a trend very much based, I think, on, on the Austrian school way of thinking that uh, fiat currency is uh, outside of, of Islam 
and that uh, commodity-based currency, so basing money on gold and silver, uh, is the way it should be. Again, I, I don't see any evidence of that. Um, there, there is mention, again, especially in, in, this, in the Ahadith, about the dirham and the dinar. But the reason, again, from historical record that that was focused on was because there was a lot of other dodgy currency. Those were the two most uh, concrete, if you want to call it that, currencies revolving around the time. So the idea that fiat currency itself uh, is outside the realm of Islam or is disliked, I mean, I just I haven't seen any convincing evidence of that. What about like the, uh, you know, as far as uh, just the term Islamic economics? Um and, and and I know I know exactly what you're saying. Like when when you know, as far as forward buying, you know, we call it salam, or yeah. uh, or salaf, you know, in in yeah. the Arabic language. Um, and Rasulullah in his hadith, he said, "I saw people, right? They were they were using this forward buying, so we should." And he accepted it, right? So this is a type of thing of uh, in the Sharia that has to do with. Rasulullah having a taqrir, right? Like he sees something happening and he says, this is allowed, we're allowed to use this. And see, same thing goes with hijama, like cupping. I don't I don't mean to derail this conversation, but it's the same concept, right? Rasulullah he saw people practicing cupping or hijama and he said, this is the best what I've seen as far as medication is concerned. So utilize it, right? And that's where that, that, that comes up is that Rasulullah didn't invent cupping. That's what people think, right? Or it's not Islamic... Uh, from its origins type of, of practice. Rasulullah people saw people, he, he saw them practicing it and he told them, you know, this is something good to, to utilize for medication, right? And I think the same thing goes in Islamic economics as you were saying that there's many different things that were happening in the Arabian Peninsula and Rasulullah he accepted some of those things for people to utilize and then when he saw uh, or when he was uh, explaining, like you know, uh, a very basic verse in the Quran through the Hadith, you know, Allahu al-Riba. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala allowed all types of buying, and the all types of buying out of all those, riba is the one that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala isn't allowing you to do. And that brings us to like a maxim, right, in the Sharia that al, al, uh, in Arabic it's al-aslu fil ashya, and the same thing goes with um, the uh, economics, right. The, or, the original ruling on buying and selling is everything is allowed except for buying, except for a, a riba, right? So in that sense, I completely understand what you're saying, that Islamic economics itself is accepting of certain things that people were practicing and then certain things that were not allowed, right? So everything in between that's allowed. So everything in between that is technically Islamic economics, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you hit the, you hit the nail on the head right there. Um, the way that I explain it to people is at the time, you know, the, the, the Arabian area was split up into, into three kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, there was the middle kingdom, the central kingdom, and the, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was very fertile. It also had a lot of trade with the Byzantine Empire. The southern area, again, was also fertile and had a lot of... Uh, a trade with uh, what is now Ethiopia, uh, you know, and that's where the whole idea of, of interacting with Sabians comes from and all that. Mm-hmm. The, the central area, the Hejaz, was not fertile. Uh, it was a desert. It was harsh. Um, you had to be productive uh, to survive. I mean, there's been a, a number of very, very amazing books 
about the sociology of you know what we what we call the Jahiliya Arabs, uh, and and how their culture was constructed to survive the fact that they lived in a harsh desert, and they couldn't grow much, so most of their lives was based on trading. Mm-hmm. So again, when you know the advent of of prophecy for a prophet salam came about they were already buying and trading doing all sorts of business and as as you said you are you know i believe you'd be 100 percent correct if you look at all the hadith that pertain to islamic economics and contracts and most of the books of hadith a large section of it has to do with contracts yeah uh it's not, if you read those hadith, it's never like, oh, by the way, you know, the Prophet comes in and says, okay, we have to talk about uh, how we buy things. Everyone stop what you're doing. You know, we got to have sellers over here, buyers over here. It's always something had happened, uh, you know, like the famous hadith where Bilal, you know, traded the old dates for the new dates, you know, and it's yeah. kind of like, well, he overhears what happened and then he says, okay, well, this part of it, you got to change. It was a slow adjustment. It wasn't, you know, let's blow up everything on the spot and start anew, right? So when, so going kind of back to that, you know, what is Islamic economics, you know, how is it different from capitalism? In my opinion, if you want to say what is the Islamic economic system, it is a market-based system, you know, because that's what was going on at the time. And then there were slow introduction, not only with the Prophet ﷺ, but with, you know, uh, Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali, you know, during their reigns as the Khalifa, uh, slowly things, you know, introduced different ideas of, you know, could the state get involved, could it not get involved, and there's a healthy debate back and forth. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100%. You know, sometimes I, I believe people read you know, what the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, yeah, this is okay, or yeah, this is completely fine, and they interpret that as being, well, that is what we have to do. It's all with good intention. Yeah, right? and and you know, like, like for instance, um, uh, mashallah, you, you also researched the, uh, the Maliki school of uh, fiqh, and you realize that... Um, well, uh, I, I never, I never researched. I mean, well, you're, <laughs> uh, you're Maliki, I guess, then, right? That's what I'm. I, at. I, I, I'm Maliki by prayer, and I follow the Maliki fiqh from. Mashallah. Okay. Well, I know that have studied the Maliki fiqh. Don't, uh, don't make me any smarter than. Okay. So, 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 what, what, what I'm, what I'm getting at is that every single one of these uh, fuqaha, the jurists of Islam, and plus more than the four uh, of the jurists that are well known, they all developed uh, a. From all the way from after Salah, Zakat, Soman, Hajj, that's where buyu, buying and selling starts from. And they have their whole uh, uh, legal way of dealing with everything and a whole manual and everyone forms a manual. We call it fiqh of buying and selling, right? Um, and that's the key point is fiqh of buying and selling. And fiqh of buying and selling is referred to in English, we call it economics, right? So these personal contracts are actually buying and selling, but how you buy and sell, whether it's with a corporation or whether it's the person, how do you form a corporation and all those different things, right? So I think what, what the the question we may be able to direct this in a, in, in a certain way is because uh, every economic system or way of dealing with economics and finances has to have a motive that starts it or that sparks it, right? which is what we would refer to as a philosophy. And you could correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is just some reading that I've done. I may be... Uh, no, it sounds, it sounds good to me. But, but uh, I think what 
he may have been referring to is that capitalism, the philosophy is kind of based on scarcity of resources, right? And um, and it, it can equal hoarding in a certain way. And the philosophy of Islamic economics is based on distribution. You understand what I'm saying? And since it, it would be based on distribution, um, I think that led the fuqaha to form a system of Islamic economics. And I mean, like, for instance, in the courtroom, right? And even Islamic economics, the ummah uh, for like the past 800 years in, in the courtrooms was predominantly conducted in Hanafi fiqh. Right, and same thing with the buying and selling. Depending on if you were in North Africa or if you were uh, somewhere else, you know, or in Turkey, Turkey was predominantly Hanafi in history, right? Um, so I think that's what is meant by you know what we mean by Islamic economic sure. system, right? Generally, oh, I, I oh I understand. I don't know. I, I I get where you're going with there. I mean, I I, I agree somewhat, but I, I you know I, I somewhat I don't I don't know if I if I buy that. Um, and, and the reason why I say it is even capitalism, first off, the, the term capitalism is, is a bit rough because to define it is very difficult. Hmm. Um, the way Karl Marx, and the only reason why I'm bringing him up again is just because one of the theories is that he came up with the term. You know, He would say that it's you know the privatized ownership of the means of production and capital. Then you have Max Weber, the famous sociologist who came up with the concept of uh, the Protestant work ethic, looked more at the socioeconomic effects of the Industrial Revolution and defined that as capitalism. But even you know market-based economics, planned economics, Islamic economics, it's all about, all of them are about distribution. Because economics as a science is about scarcity. Uh, now, we know as Muslims... From a metaphysical standpoint, the idea of scarcity really is just, you know, it's a human understanding. You know, there is nothing scarce to Allah. In reality, Allah can make as much of anything as he wants. There really is no scarcity. But from us as human beings, the way we face the physical world, we do face the notion that there are scarce resources. Now, capitalism or market-based economics, the way that we deal with distributing goods and services when scarcity arises is to subject it to a market, to subject it to a price, buyers and sellers. The planned economic or the, the communist point of view is to nationalize resources and to basically mete out the resources in a certain way, usually, uh, I guess theoretically you could say equally amongst everybody, but we all know that's not true. Uh, Islamic economics, if you want to kind of go in that direction, I guess you could say Islamic economics looks at, you know, how do we distribute goods and services using the market, but also factoring in the moral teachings of, of the Prophet Salam in the Quran. Um, so, I mean, I, I, that's what I mean. I, I, agree, I agree with you in a certain sense, but I also disagree with it because I, I'm still very much under the impression that a lot of times people bring up the idea, and I'm not saying you personally, but just in general, mm -hmm. this idea of an Islamic economic system because they want it to be something different from everything else. I see um, what you're saying. So in, in, to add detail to that, like then yep. uh, um, when the jurists, they, they combine everything from the Quran and Sunnah and they form a system. And it's true that if you want to call something Islamic economic system, I and I firmly believe this, based on the Hadith and, and the Quran, 
um, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed all types of buying and selling, right? Except for a certain type, right? And Rasulullah he saw certain things and then he said, this is good because, you know, and because there's benefit in this and it's not any type of uh, uh, cheating happening here. There's no type of, uh, uh, you know, imbalancing of the scales, for instance. But if, as far as, do you think that, is it safe to say that all economics is based on scarcity itself, all economics? Or is it that, us as human beings, we see how to survive and how can we survive without stepping on other people's feet. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, the answer, I, I mean, you're not going to find a unified answer on that. I yeah, yes, yes, yes. I mean, no, your personal opinion because, my own personal yeah. Opinion, oh, man, um, you know. As, it's a loaded as, question, sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my bad, dude. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'll say, I don't know, from my own personal it's tough. As an academic, I have to work with the assumption that the world is scarce. Gotcha. As a theorist, I have to. It would be very hard to model, you know, the fact that Allah can increase, you know, anything to any level. But I don't even mean on that level, like, for instance, on capitalism. I don't mean to get too political. Sure, but sure. The, but we have many entities, uh, I'll just put it that way, that even though there may not be scarcity, but they want to uh, hoard uh, you know, many types of things, and they don't really need to do that because they have a, abundance of that. But they don't want to tap into whatever they're. I, I uh, yeah, I, 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 I see what you're saying, and I agree with you there 100. percent And that's why I say when, when, when we talk about Islamic economics, I personally think a better thing is economics for the Muslim. Gotcha. So we can use economic theory, but again, like you're saying, someone could say, "Well, we're going to hoard wealth because I can create a model that says that you know hoarding wealth, not paying zakat." You know, doing these things, uh, you know, engaging in, you know, in, in the riba, and that's a discussion in and of itself, yeah. uh, it is better. And we say, well, that may be true, but as Muslims, we will not do that. Now, will that introduce inefficiency into a market or an economy? Maybe. But we as Muslims have to weigh the fact that we're going to have to deal with maybe inefficiency because we still have the word of Allah. Of course. Right. So I would, that's why I always say, look, there's economics and then we can study that. We should study it. We should study it more, to be honest. But then we should also realize that we're also Muslim. Yes. And we have certain things that we believe that may not make any practical sense, right? You can try to talk, and I've done this before. You can talk about Islamic economics. You can talk about why we you know, prohibit certain forms of interest why we don't like debt. And to someone who is a secular economist, they just, you know, in the end, you know, if, if it doesn't make sense from a point of efficiency, then they're just not going to buy it. You can yeah. give them all the practical arguments all you want, but the point is we're not going to do it because Allah said not to do it. Of course. And I mean, that's, again, that's what gives us that, uh, that, that nice tranquility is that even if there's not efficiency in it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, he expects that from us. Um, sure. you know, and 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 that that's something that just comes with belief, I guess. You know, it's that comes with that but submission. Not to say that uh, you should be inefficient. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> well, no, 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 of course. What I'm trying to say is, a lot of times, even to us, a lot of things don't make sense to us, whether it be ritualistic things in, in the Sharia, but we still do it because we have submission to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And even if we do something, you know, and this is just something as a reminder for all of us and our listeners, that even if we do something and it's for out of submission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but we still uh, don't understand the, the, the essence of it, 
um, even for that, we're getting ajr, right? Because we're, we're submitting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And uh, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, individuals that may not be in the fold of Islam. And we're trying to, and I, I do agree, we do have to fix our terminologies up a lot of times because people don't understand a lot of the terminologies that we may be utilizing, especially in Islamic economics, right? And uh, it may not make sense to them, right? And I think a lot of times, even in the past, many jurists have talked about this, that there's 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 certain things that people, they're not going to, uh, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim, they're not going to understand a lot of this. And some of the specialists may not understand the essence of it, but they just do it because uh, it's in the Sharia, right? Jerry, fast-forwarding a little bit, or let's talking talking about more current situations uh, or climates in, in American politics right now, a lot of talk is about redistribution of wealth with uh, the whole Bernie Sanders phenomena. Um, everyone's, every Muslim that I talk to is in favor of Bernie and I'm you up know, for Trump, dude. They're they're all they're all um, <laughs> they're all gung ho about I'm him all the way up. Speak for yourself, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you know my my mom uh, was born and raised in Atlantic City. Uh, you don't mention Trump's name in Atlantic City, really? Oh yeah, he 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 left with no friends intact. Oh man, uh, he did a lot of shady dealings in there, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that should be the least of your worries with Trump. Man. <laughs> What's the Islamic view? on uh, the whole redistribution of wealth and just from your own experience um that is a fascinating question uh because i've noticed and and i say this with love to my friends because i know they're going to hear this and their heads are going to explode there's a (laughs) there's a trend in in muslims to be very libertarian um to the point of annoyance in my own opinion but for some and for some reason, I know a lot of libertarians that were supporting Bernie. I don't know why, considering most of his economic views were not libertarian, except he doesn't like the Fed either. Uh, you know, that's, I think that was the one thing that was uniting you know liberals uh, and and uh, conservatives on that one. But um, although I like the Fed, but that's just me. Uh, so, in in regards to the redistribution of wealth, that you know that that debate, I kid you not, goes all the way back. Uh, to the Caliphate of Ummah, because you know the Prophet Salam, you know, when he created, you know, the first Islamic government. I, I'm not going to say Islamic state, so I don't want people to get confused. But when he when he created the first Muslim government in that area, it was very small. You know, the expenditures and the problems, you know, were were kind of minor from a financial standpoint. And that's why during, you know, when you look at the economic contributions of each of the, the first war, uh, Khalifa, Abu Bakr's main thing was just to keep people paying zakat. Yeah. You know, people, you know, they had the apostates. People said, well, look, you know, the Prophet is dead. My, my contract was with him. If he's dead, then, well, I don't have to pay the zakat. I don't have to do all this. And, and Abu Bakr's really his main point was, no, let's keep the ummah together. And we need the money and you got to pay your zakat. Um, then when you got to the time of Omar, we know that his empire expanded all over the globe. And financially, things changed. And so what happened was Omar started to introduce a lot of different things that weren't obviously contradictory, but they were new. Uh, different taxes that weren't, that weren't levied before. Uh, different ways of, again... Uh, redistributing different types of price controls when there was an issue. Uh, and a lot of things got into it. And what's fascinating, and I give this out to the Hanafis out there. Um, 
Uh, yeah, here you go. Uh, uh, Abu Yusuf uh, had a very famous book, basically called the Book of Finance, and it's really in two parts. The first part has actually nothing to do with finance, and it's basically an argument to say it was okay to disagree with Omar, because a lot of people felt well. He's a Sahaba, and not only is he a Sahaba, but you know he's one of the greatest Sahaba. You know what I mean? And if he said it, then it's got to be basically canon. You know, it's got to be law. And his argument in the beginning of this book is to say, well, we take the opinions of those Sahaba very seriously, and above anyone else except, of course, uh, the Prophet. <laughs> but Umar wasn't a prophet. And therefore, it's okay to disagree with him. And then the rest of the book basically goes and tears up a lot of the things that Omar did. So when you hear, uh, you know, economists, you know, Muslim economists that say, well, it's okay to have redistribution of wealth. It's okay for the government to get involved here. A lot of the evidence of that comes from uh, things that were done under Omar and under Ali. And those that are more libertarian in nature tend to focus a little bit more on uh, the early stuff with Abu Bakr and Uthman, because Uthman was a very much a you could say a laissez-faire type of type of guy. So, and then you have people like uh, Mahmoud Al Gamal, who's an economist that writes University, who'll just say, "Well, you basically can find evidence for both sides. So what's the point?" <laughs> and, he's, and he's got he's got some you know. It's got somewhat of a of a point, but uh, yeah, and I guess like that. I don't mean to cut you off, but it's just yeah, sure. I, yeah and uh, and even when uh, when Abu Yusuf was mentioning that, he was trying to also get the point out that just because Omar radiallahu anh said it, it's a valid opinion, but it doesn't mean that there's other ways of doing it also. Oh, right? exactly, exactly, because that's not what he says isn't complete Sharia. It's his ijtihad that he's going to be utilizing based on the Quran and Sunnah, which is what a mujtahid is supposed to do, but. Um, there's other ways of doing it too, as long as again you're staying on to key principles to make it to keep it Islamic, right? And, yeah, I, and think it, I think it's an. I think people really should read it because it's it's amazing. I mean, I I agree with a lot of the things that Omar did, and I, and I like it. But I I love the fact that you know I just have said, well, you know, you can you can like it all you want, and we we respect it, but I can still disagree with it. Of course, of <laughs> course, know? yeah. And I think it's important, you know, and and that's a and that I think is just an important idea. In general, I can listen to a scholar and I can respect them very much, but I can also disagree with them. Yeah, I respect. Um, I, I hate to mention names, but 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 I say respect. <laughs> say it, say it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, well, no, no, you know, you know, Sheikh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Yeah, I got nothing but love for him. Not only is is he a fellow convert, but he's also a fellow Greek as well, uh, and, and a fellow Maliki. So there's some, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I and I, I have nothing but love for the brother. Uh, on so many issues, I agree with him. I just I disagree with his point of view on economics on almost every level. I I just I I know where he's coming from, and, and I won't get into it because there's some politics involved. But I just fundamentally disagree with his view of economics, you know, and and his opinions. 
I respect him, you know, and there's no doubt about that. But I, you know, I, I just disagree. Of course, yeah, he and, could be right, and that and that's a beautiful yeah, thing. I, that's a beautiful thing about the Sharia, right? As long as you don't disagree with the oneness of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and the angels and Rasulullah and all the prophets, you know, the core things that have to do with aqidah and very very minimal things in fiqh. I mean, there's there's lots of room for disagreement, right? And I think that that's one of the main reasons why we started this podcast is to let people realize that. And say like, what do you guys actually? What are we all as an ummah disagreeing about? And you know, what's what's stopping us from uniting? And uh, small uh, fiqhi things, which are sometimes even from from location to location, different parts of the globe, are inevitably going to be different. Of course, you yeah. know. Yeah, and, the the level of discourse in this country had become venomous. Yeah. Uh, President Trump, company included, uh, was not innocent of that. So we we kind of learned from our mistakes, and we're like, okay, well. What, where did we go wrong, and how do we help new generations well, can, improve I from there? I think I can tell you, just as a side, small, you know, sidebar here, small sidebar. I, I think a lot of it has to do with, with uh, you know, education. I think a lot of people try to skip over the cost of scholarship, which is just spending the time and reading. And one of the, I, I have to say, getting a PhD and all that, or, I mean, it gives me a job. I mean, it's a marketable skill. That's great. But, you know, it doesn't put me on any supremacy. The best thing I really got out of it outside, again, of, of a career has, has really been learning that there are so many different opinions and in economics, not even in Islam, but it's in economics. And you really, if, if you're going to waste your time arguing, you know, with people to such a degree, I mean, it's, it's so time consuming, Yeah. you know. Like I, I tell friends of mine, I, I have a fundamental problem with libertarian economic theory. I just do. From from a philosophical and, a, and an economic theoretical problem, I just don't buy it at all. I know many people that, you know, will live and die libertarian stuff. That's cool, you know. It's cool. Believe, that's fine. <laughs> it's cool. I like the way you said it's that. Cool, it's you know? cool. I mean, we can, we can talk about it over coffee, but, you know, if it gets to the point where I'm feeling uncomfortable that you're going to, like, hit me, it's like, fine, you're right. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. It's, it's, in the end, it's it doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> exactly, isn't it? Isn't that the point, though? Learning that hey, if that person holds that view, it's not going to change the world. Jerry, so with the difference of opinion as far as our approach to economics, so you know, traditionally in two thousand, a lot of people would say the Muslims put W in office, right? Traditionally, <laughs> Muslims were Republicans, and now recently, you've seen. Muslim leaders saying we should be unified behind the Democratic Party. They serve our interests. But then if there's different – we differ on economic views, right? There's a, there's a room for that. And I've met brothers who are in the Republican Party still, and they'll say, well, we need to engage both parties. In light of us being such a small minority – and just talk about economics beyond the civil liberties and all that other stuff going on right now. Purely economics, yeah. You know, just purely economics of two parties. How – what what would what would your what's your opinion on that? Should we engage both parties, or do we, or should we side behind behind one just because we're such a small uh, minority? Again, that that's just from my own personal opinion, and you can get multiple strategies there. I well, I think engaging both is important, uh, especially because of the political climate and the fact that you know people people really don't know Muslims and and we're just. Especially been very much demonized, uh, which is which I think is partly our fault, partly not our fault. I, I think the engagement is because, like you said, you I've met Muslims that economically agree with the Republican platform. I've met some that agree with the Democratic platform. Some that are li- very uh, in the Libertarian Party. You know, some that uh, I, I've met 
you know, Islamic socialists. I mean, there is Islamic socialism. It's been around for quite some time. You, you have to engage all of them. Now, yeah. you know, my own personal opinion, I have, you know, my own ideas of what I think is correct. But yeah, I think you, you need to engage all of them. The idea of, of hedging your bets and just, let's say, uh, uh, you know, pandering, if you want to call it that, or just engaging the Republican Party or just engaging the Democratic Party is going to make you a token. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because what you're basically saying is we all think this way and therefore you can treat us all this way. I mean, you get that uh, with the brothers and sisters in the Latino community. You know, you always hear that like, oh, the Latino vote. I mean, wh what is that? I mean, you know, there's <laughs> you have so many different cultures, so many different points of view. You know, uh, uh, Cubans are going to have a different point of view than than those from Puerto Rico, from those from, you know, Argent Argentina. And it's the same thing with Muslims. Yeah. You know, we're not a monolithic voting block. You know, at least I, I don't think we should be. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so I think the engagement of everybody, if, if you're a Republican, you know, economically speaking, uh, that's great. I have, I have, you know, Republican friends, you know, and, and, and if you're d more democratic leaning, yeah, that's great. Engage both. I, I, you have to engage as many people as possible. So it shows the diversity uh, of Muslims. And we're not just this, again, this one monolithic beast uh, that can be tokenized or demonized. Uh, one last question about the American political landscape before we move on. Um, you, would you agree that a lot of people, not even Muslims, but Americans in general, just have a very superficial view of why they stand with a certain party as far as economics go? Like, you know, I used to be the treasurer of the college Republicans back in college, okay? Mm. And their logic was, well, Democrats, oh, they're just freaking trying to get welfare and be lazy bums. And why should I have to pay for their laziness, you know, when I'm working hard? And on the flip side, you know, the Democratic, you know, and economics, from that perspective, they might be like, oh, these corporations are just trying to – it's the man trying to screw us, you know. And now you, then you realize oh, there's a lot more nuance to it. You, you, would you agree that people just, just have a very superficial understanding of economic theory uh, when they side with a party? I mean, you're you're under the working assumption that people even know what economics is. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, you know, and this is in the Muslim world too. Uh, I don't know how many times, uh, hey brother, dude, can you come and 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 talk to the community about uh, you know personal budgeting? I'm like, you obviously don't know me because I'm terrible with money. <laughs> Most economists are. Most famous economists were broke or just lost money. Uh, yeah, people wow. don't really even know what economics is, and uh, I mean. And, uh, in all honesty, I mean, politics, it's, it's, it's all theater. I mean, especially presidential politics, it's, it's a popularity contest. I remember way back, again, dating myself when I was, when I was younger, and you remember Ross Perot. Yeah. Uh, Ross Perot, people don't remember this, he bought prime time airtime, yeah. you know, Sundays at like 7, 8 o'clock, you know, uh, Thursdays, 8 o'clock. He brought, you know, bought prime time air. And literally, you can probably find the videos on YouTube, try to explain to the American public economics and hence libertarian economic philosophy. Yeah. And as an economist, even though I may not dis I may disagree with, with his approach, but as an economist, I'm like, that's great. He's trying to teach it. Nobody cared. Right? Nobody cares. And, that, and it's always funny. Like, oh, what's the details of Trump's policy? What's the details of Hillary's or Bernie's? Does it really matter? Because no one's, no one's diving into it. I mean, yeah, maybe economists are, but the average person isn't diving into it. Uh, because it's complex, and, and you know, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but to understand trade, to understand central banking theory, to understand fiscal policy, and 
you know, and, and, and how legislating, you know, Congress works with budgeting. I mean, no one, it, no one's going to know. I mean, maybe students of my classes will, will know, but you know, the average person, they don't have the time to know that kind of stuff. Uh, so it gets very truncated and, and, and like you said, very superficial and it gets shot out and people do the best they can with that. But, you know, when, when it comes to that stuff, like uh, in regards to the mix between uh, Republicans and Democrats in, in economics, it, it really doesn't matter. You know, it's funny because like the Republicans are always, well, we need to balance the budget, we need to cut spending, and yet they never do. Even when, <laughs> even when they have control of everything, they still spend. You know, it's America all a bunch of theory, yeah. Austerity, yet we never act on it. Mm, exactly. <laughs> We're always spending. <laughs> right, uh, right. Just, they disagree on where to spend it. Sure. You know. Sorry. Yeah. No, so, no, it was good, man. So, like, a few weeks back, right, I, I get up for Sahur, I check my phone, and there's some vote in England. And I'm like, why do people care about this? And then I thought it was about, like, the England national soccer team getting ousted by Iceland, the Euro <laughs> tournament. But I realized there's actually some uh, something called European Union, and then England, UK left it. So what's, the, what's that all about? What's going on there? What's, a, what's with the Brexit? They haven't left it yet, yeah. Um, yeah, Brexit, which, which started with Grexit. Again, being Greek, I could tell you all about that, too. Um, <laughs> Which is is more just tears and eventuality, but uh, yeah. So um, the Europe, see, the European Union is complex. Back in the day, and this kind of comes out from from the end of World War II. The the best way I can explain the EU is is in many ways to explain it like the United States. Uh, we have individual states; they have their own laws, they have their own ways of doing things. But we agreed through our shared history, language, culture, that we're one nation and we have a federal government. And you, as a state, you know, and this is a whole legal argument, but as, basically as a state, you can enact certain laws as long as it doesn't violate federal law. You can travel. I can travel from Pennsylvania to Delaware to New York to New Jersey. I don't need a passport. I can buy and sell goods and services all over the U.S. with very little problems. And, and taxes, you know, very few taxes, stuff like that. That was the idea behind the EU, that European nations have a shared history. Although they have different languages and cultures, they have a shared culture. And they should politically form a union and also economically form a union. Hmm. It was contentious, to say the least, when it, when it began. And it still is now. The same argument exists that, well, yeah, there's somewhat of a shared history, but, you know, France is France and Germany is Germany and England's England. England itself, uh, just to keep it in context of England, never really felt comfortable with the idea. Uh, they're part of the, of the economic union, but they don't use the euro. They still use the pound. Right. Um, they, and, and the idea there is that they're part of this grander economic scheme, but they still have the Bank of England. That's the Central Bank of England, and they can print more and destroy currency, and they can do their own monetary policy, uh, as opposed to, just because I said it, Greece uses the euro. They don't have monetary policy. The EU itself has one central bank, just so happens to be located where they don't like it to be, but they have their own central bank that makes those decisions. So there's a little less power, but they have a more stable currency. England didn't never like that. Um, and then, so recently, yeah, we have this idea of the Brexit. Now the argument for 
why should the UK leave the EU? There's a number of different arguments that were presented. Largely, they tried to present it as this big economic liberation that the UK would be so much better off economically if they left the EU. And then there was also the political dimension to it. Now, as economists, and I can say this by and large, the consensus, the general consensus, is it was a really, really, really dumb idea. There, there really is no logic economically to, for the UK leaving uh, the EU. One, I mean, England, in, in all honesty, and I say this with respect, from, from, the, from the lever side, tended to overstate the, the size and the, and the influence that the, the English economy really has. It's really not as big as, as many people think. Hmm. Uh, it's a financial hub. There's no doubt about that. Well, it was. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think... Isn't the comparison made to, like, to California or something? Like, the, the size of the economy is similar to oh, California? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's even less than California. I think yeah. the cut in our military budget sometimes is their entire GDP. Wow. I mean, they make it... The, the people that wanted to leave made it like they're basically financing all of the EU. Right. And they shouldn't. And the reality is like, and people have explained to it, you are going to lose more than you are going to gain because the amount of money that is sent to England, especially towards those in the agricultural sector and the, and, and the poor, uh, it, it just made no sense, you know. Um, so, yeah, they, in my opinion, they kind of overstated their importance and their size. Well, wasn't wasn't the primary objective a form of protest due to the immigration policies? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, that's what it, I mean. That's what I say. They dressed it up like it was a fight against the regulations. So many regulations. Of course, if they want to trade with these countries in the EU, they still got to abide by these regulations. Exactly, and that's what I think a lot of what's been kind of lost. It's it was it was complete insanity. The the, the ultimate point of the of. of UKIP's push to do this not only was just based on immigration, but it's purely based on racism. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the old English for the English. Uh, you know, they felt, you know, and this is this goes all the way back, you know, to the 80s, even further than that. Uh, that when you had a when you had a migration of those from South Asia, you know, uh, India, Pakistan, uh, Bengalis moving to England. Basically, England was becoming less white, and and that angered people who were English. Uh, and so, you know, England for the English was was a popular rallying cry. And if you notice, when did this whole push for for a referendum vote come? When Germany said, "Well, the EU has to make a commitment for X number of Syrian refugees." Right. And if England is part of the EU, then they have to abide by what uh, you know is said there. You know, and I, I just—it's funny how you know uh, Chancellor Merkel said that, and then all of a sudden there's this big push to leave the EU. Yeah. In my opinion, there is the only reason to do it was this idea that uh, we just don't want any more non-English people, specifically darker-skinned non-English people, entering into the country. And I'm, I'm saying that very blatantly because. Right. I, I don't see the point of trying to hide it. Yeah. So, quick recap: the EU was founded. Was it after World War II? And was is the United Kingdom an original member of the EU? You know, when, when you start looking at these large organizations, the specific dates and who came when is it, it's it's a little tough. 
there were certain countries that were that were in there first, ones that politically had to kind of be there. It started. It definitely started after World War II. I mean, some people say it started in '93. Other people say it actually started back in the 1960s. It's kind of tough. It's, it starts with an idea at first, right? And then a framework. And then if they ever came up with the idea of what the EU is now and you, to the people it's, back then, they would kind of freak out like, no, right yeah, away, you know? It's, 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 very, hmm. it's, it's tough. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, well, the United States was, you know, started in, well, 1776 was the right. Declaration of Independence, but then it wasn't really till 1791 with the formation of the government. But then there's a difference between Articles of Confederation and then, you know, the Constitution. So, I mean, it's it's tough to say, you know, when did it start? Most people say it was like the early 90s. Yeah, that, I mean, that, the 90s are usually when you're starting to hear the EU regularly in, yeah. in papers yeah. and, and journals and whatnot. Yeah, I wasn't reading a paper before the 90s anyways, <laughs> so I wouldn't know. <laughs> um, so the, the United Kingdom is what? England, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland? Uh, uh, no, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, the, the UK is England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales. Ireland <laughs> itself is a separate country. Northern Ireland, I believe, is still part of right. the UK. And that's why after the vote, Northern Ireland and Scotland want to leave the UK and go back to the, <laughs> the EU because they need the money. Uh, you know, uh, Ireland Ireland went through so much to become a member of the EU. They're never leaving. Uh, they they put them through the ringer, man, yeah. uh, to, to prove their worth. Um, and that's why Ireland had such a problem when everyone was bending backwards to, to help Greece out uh, because Greece... They the EU needed Greece to be in from a political standpoint, and Greece lied about their their finances, and then they're constantly going. Anyway, let's not talk about this. Do, um, do you do you think um, recently, a couple of weeks ago, Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey said that the reason why Turkey has not been admitted to the EU is to the due to the fact that they're Muslim, and he said that to an uh, academic crowd in a university in in uh, the capital. So. Well, what's your thoughts on that? And just, you, to give think, a, oh, sorry, yeah, just to give a background, uh, Turkey has been trying for a long time, yeah. uh, even yeah. before Erdogan, to get into. Uh, and that's where a lot of Muslims had a lot of contentions with them and saying that you guys are becoming super un-Islamic just to get into the EU. And Yeah, you know, of course, I mean, you know, you name, it doesn't matter, you know, who wrote what or who said what. Yeah. They're from Europe all of a sudden, they're not, you know, Islam. Yeah. Uh, which, which is, to me, not only is it a... a a huge insult to all the Europeans who have embraced Islam, but also what about all the Baltic, you know, the Bosnians? Yeah, you know, you've got you know hundreds and hundreds of years of, of a Muslim community, and, yeah. and you're going to tell me they're not Muslim because they're white. Uh, so, you know, but I, I think he's right. I mean, in 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 one case, I mean, the the argument against it is that. Turkey is known as what the gateway to the Middle East, right? It's it's always kind of been a little European. It's more European than some of the Gulf countries and the Asian countries, uh, but it's you know it, it's it's a weird mix. Yeah. Um, and so you talk to people, you know, non-Muslims, and they'll be like, "Wait, Turkey's not in the EU?" And then other people will be like, "Yeah, why would Turkey want to be in the EU?" It's a tough one, hmm. but I mean, I would believe with with uh, with Erdogan that. Uh, I think the primary motivation is not not necessarily just because they are Muslim. Because again, there's there's uh, Baltic countries that are majority Muslim that that are uh, in the EU now. But I think 
the culture, the the historical culture of the Ottoman Empire and so on and so forth yes. is what keeps them back. I would just I, I was just gonna say that, yeah. I mean uh, and 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 you, when you I don't know if you ever been to Turkey I, w- when you go to Turkey and you get a chance to talk to the Turks and even at a, at a high level you know politicians they still have that feel that we used to be the Ottomans we were the you know they they still have that in yeah. them it's a cultural thing that's kind of ingrained in them and well, that's to me that's very European you go anywhere in Europe and they just hearken to days doesn't matter I mean you go to again. Uh, you know, a family of mine that's Greek, and I mean, they still talk about Greece like like there's something. I mean, it's no, no, yeah. of course. But the reason, but the reason why I brought that up is the reason why I brought that up is I'm pretty sure that that attitude would be a liability, obviously, to the European Union. Have, have you ever been to France? Yes, I've been to France. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's yeah. nothing in English there. You're right. You're right. Because they still remember the time when you know France was the language of the world, and they refused to give that up. Yep. The, the England still thinks they run the entire world. You know mm. what I mean? Just you know, I'm not to the individual English person, but I'm just mean culturally. Yeah, but um, do you think? But the reason again why I mentioned this, the the religious aspect that's there with the Turks, not because of Turkishness, because of that that thing where they're going to start bringing in a lot more Islam into it. And they're the they'd probably be the only ones in the European Union that were such an entity, and they still have a lot of that in them. And in that sense, I, I was thinking it may be a, a type of liability to them. You know? I mean, it, it. I don't. I can't. I can't be in 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 their head as to why. I mean, yeah. If 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 someone said that's why, there's a very high possibility of that. If someone said no, it's more of they don't have that same shared cultural thing. That could be true. It could be an economic thing as well. I mean, I, my my opinion is that it's leaning towards that fact. Of course, Turkey itself again isn't monolithic. You go to the Eastern side of Turkey, yes, it's very Muslim. You yeah. go to the western side of Turkey, it's very secular. Yes, yes. You know, my uh, my mother's family is from an island called Hios, which is you can swim to Turkey. Oh wow! Uh, you know, but you know, you go to Izmir and, and these east uh, these uh, western parts of uh, of Turkey, and you know, it's it's not that it's not Muslim. You know, it's there's no you know, there's still masjid and, and you know all that, but yeah. it's it's not you know that pervasive yes 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 yeah so uh to kind of wrap things up what what are the immediate things that we as muslims are or us as americans should worry about with the whole brexit thing well what should we be looking out for let's put it this way i mean there was there was the immediate well first off let me just say this they haven't left the eu yet right a lot of people think that the english have now voted to do it it was a referendum it's unlike how it is in the u.s when we have something on a ballot it basically was one big opinion poll it was a really official opinion poll Uh, are you saying they don't have to do it technically speaking yeah it doesn't have to happen it's uh, i'll explain it like this there's there's a philosophy of representation so when we vote in let's say a senator or a congressman are we voting that person to basically look at the will of the people? What do 51% of the people want? And I'll vote that. Or are we voting for that person because I like their point of view and I like the way that they will vote? That's kind of how it is in England. They have, you know, uh, uh, the House of Commons, the House of Lords. They vote for these people in. And this referendum basically says, this is what we want to do. It is up now to the equivalent of the legislative branch in the UK to now vote for what they call Article 50, which is the secession from the EU. 
it hasn't happened yet. Because once it happens, once they, they enact uh, that provision, according to the EU, they have two years of a buffer period where now the UK would have to negotiate uh, trade deals with every single country in the EU. Logistically speaking, it's a costly nightmare for, for England, what they would have to do. Uh, that's one of the benefits of being in the EU. You don't have to you know, negotiate with every single country. You just negotiate with the EU. Right. Now they're going to have to do it. And as the, the mayor of, uh, of London had said, I thought brilliantly, was do the people who want to leave think that they're going to get a better deal outside of an organization or when they're a member of the organization? Exactly. I mean, you know, it's, it's ludicrous. Yeah. Of course you're going to get a better deal if you're in with a group. If you're outside of a group, why would they cut you a better deal? You don't even want to be with them. So is, is that why everyone, no one wants to become a prime minister of uh, UK? The rats <laughs> have fled the ship. Yeah. Well, the reason why Cameron uh, resigned is he was the one that put the vote up. He didn't have to. He could have just kept on ignoring it. But from what I gather from English politics, because again, we're in the US here, but from what I gather from English politics was he was trying to appease a very hard line of the UKIP, the UK Independence Party, which my opinion is an extremely racist party, but whatever, uh, trying to appease them. Uh, and so he put the vote up, I guess, expecting that it wouldn't go through, and it's kind of a major screw-up. So he left. The head of the UKIP party, this Farage guy, uh, who caused all kinds of problems, he left. He's no longer the head. Boris Johnson, the old mayor of London, who basically was the person who was fueling this, and he was going to take over the, the PM, he left. You know, everyone who wanted this to happen all of a sudden is, you know, is, has fled the sinking ship. So it, it shows <laughs> it shows serious character flaws there, you know, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, now, whether or not they will actually go through with it, I don't know. The person who's most likely going to be the prime minister, she even though was in favor of staying has basically said, I will go with the will of the people. And we'll it's uh, Theresa May, right? Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But so a lot of the people... I don't know what is going to happen in the end, if they will actually go through with it or not. Right. My, my prediction is they will go through with it. From a global standpoint, for especially us here in the United States, we saw the immediate effects. The stock market took a hit. The stock market always takes a hit whenever something weird happens. It'll take a hit no matter who's elected president. It'll take a hit you know, when there's a natural disaster. Anytime there's uncertainty in the world, investors pull their money. I mean, that, that's going to happen. Um, so if you have a retirement account, if you have you know, an IRA, if you have some savings and you took a hit, unless you're retiring in the next month, don't worry about it. Just sit on it. It'll go back up. Uh, us in the U.S., probably not. The only thing that, I mean, now, England is going to be a disaster. We'll see what happens in the next five years. you got to give it time to play out. But most likely it's going to be a very, very bad five years uh, for England and generally for the world economy. For the U.S., uh, the most immediate thing that happened is it caused the Federal Reserve once again to say that they're not going to be raising interest rates. Uh, so... Again, if you housing is you know borrowing money just became extremely cheap again. So I mean that's the only immediate effect it happened has to us, the layman in in uh, in the U.S. Besides that, 
most of the problem is is really with England than mm. than anyone else. Well, what if you're working for a corporation, let's say like Aon? They're based, they're okay. a UK corporation, but you're working in yeah. the United States office. Uh, mm. Could that affect you negatively? Yeah, I mean that's that's a case by case basis. I mean, there's a lot of I mean again because England, London was a hub, right? Just like Atlanta, Chicago, New York. I'll say Philly, even though people probably disagree with that. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, L.A., you know, Dallas. Uh, you know, the, London was a hub. There was it was a financial hub. A lot of banks were there. Uh, it's a it's a corporate hub, and you know, some have left. Immediately, some have left. They pulled their money, specifically the financial ones. There's been a number who have left, but they were they had very small offices in, in England. There's talk like you know, Vodafone is going to leave England. Is the relationship between England and the U.S. isn't really going to change? I don't think. Right. I mean, so like if if it's a U.K. company that's now in the U.S., is it going to change? I don't think much. Now. If it's a U.S. firm and you're working in an office in England, then I think things might change a little bit. Uh, and certain, I think, corporations that are from the EU are probably going to move out of England because, once again, they have to renegotiate not only you know trade deals but also tax incentives. What's going to happen there? So it's going to be very, very tough for England. I think if you work for an English company, the biggest thing that's going to be affected by it is, is that England is going to be facing a huge recession, um, hmm. and that and that will affect that firm. But it's not necessarily because of the fact that it's leaving the EU explicitly. It's because of the economy is going to be taking a hit because they want to leave the EU, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. So to sum up the finality of Brexit, you're saying it's about, what, you think another two years before it's final – um, they can't go to like you know. For example, the day after, a lot of voters were saying the same thing. Oh yeah, we voted for Brexit, but then oh, we didn't realize it was actually going to pass. We were just trying to make a point. Like yeah. you know, <laughs> like can they go back and get they could they could revote? Like, but because you 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 were saying a little bit how you believe they will go through because the new prime minister will honor that initial vote. Yeah, I mean, well, she's not the prime minister yet, but uh, everyone's pointing that that this is going to be. Uh... Uh, yeah, Theresa May is going to be it, and she has said, "I, you know, fifty. I think it was, it was very, very thin majority uh, had said that. Um, you know, I think John Oliver summed it up. You know, no, there's not going to be. You know, there's not, you, there's not revotes. You know, you can't, you can't do that. Uh, they petitioned it. Millions of people signed that they wanted to do it again, and they said no. And, and I don't blame them. You know, I mean, you know." Uh, you know, when we vote for, you know, uh, a senator or a president and, you know, and you say, well, I, I don't like them. I wish you could vote for Well, you can in four years or in three years or two years. You know, you have to live with your mistake. Uh, so I, I think they'll go through with it. Now, once they finally say, yes, we are now leaving the EU, then there's a clock of two years. It just depends on when they do it. Some people suspect that they're going to be delaying the actual yes, we're leaving for a while. You know, other people... That's so uh, British, though. Just yeah. use the most opportune time. <laughs> right. and then, but then uh, the EU, especially in, in, in Brussels and in Germany and all that, they have said, you know what, we're not even waiting. That We're not even giving you two years. We're starting now. We're already starting the process now. 
to get you guys out of here. And, and that is kind of an offensive move and defensive move from Germany and, and the EU to say, just in case anyone else thinks that they're going to get this soft hand treatment if they want to leave, we're going to show you how severe it's going to be if you want to leave the EU. So England is going to be made an example of because as I mean, the, the perception of, of UKIP and this whole idea to leave was that the EU needed England more than England needed the EU. And the reality, that's not true. And, and the EU is going to make sure everyone else sees that. Mm. And so they're going to make an example of, of England. Oh, boy. Mm. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be pretty. Now, what's actually going to happen? Who knows? You know, that, that stuff only Allah knows. I mean, that 100%. But if it goes the way that many are predicting, it's not going to be good. Yeah. yeah. And do you see any negative repercussions for the Muslim world at large? As a result of this, or will they be insular? Well, yeah, I mean, think about it again. Even though the context, you know, the, the dressing of it was economics and finance, everybody knew this was all about immigration. You know, everyone in England knew that. Everyone in the States knew it. You know, you'd have to be naive to think that the main focal point of this whole leave Brexit stuff had anything else to do than, than the fact that they just don't want, especially Syrian refugees, they just don't want any more non-English. And what that's code for is non-white people. Sorry, sorry to cut you. I was talking more like an economic point of view, not the yeah. uh, immigration oh, side. Oh, oh, okay. Well, economically speaking, uh, for Muslims, I mean, if it affects the Muslims the same way it does for non-Muslims. You know, um, it, in regards to you know uh, Muslims in the U.S., and so it, it affects them equally with with everyone else. Wait, now, Mahim, when you, when you were saying Muslims, do you mean in the Muslim world? Muslim world, like in the yeah. Middle East, and like, stuff? like the Gulf, or like you know, let's say the Gulf, for example, because they're loaded, right? I don't want everyone else is broke, so I guess <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 zero minus zero equals zero. I know that much math. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, economically, the Gulf is the Gulf is a mess. I mean, once once oil dropped down, uh, it's it's been it's been the proverbial fire sale. Uh, Same with Latin America, know. right? What's that? Same with Latin America with uh, Venezuela's uh, problems. Well, that's, I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, you know, when you talk about something like OPEC, OPEC involves like half of South America. Right. You know, they're they're just as hmm. crucial as as the Gulf countries. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's affected South America too. Uh, but the Gulf, yeah, I mean, um, many of the Gulf countries have, have had it really good with, with such high oil prices that they were able to engage in, in certain activities in regards to politics that they didn't have to worry about. Now they do. Oh, yes. Um, so, but I, I don't, I, will Brexit, will Brexit affect, affect it? I mean, it'll affect the Muslim world in the same way, again, that it affects the non-Muslim world, that, that it, it augments uh, interest rates and augments how much money can be funded here and there and, and where things can be traded. Uh, but it's not, it's nothing specific to the Gulf that now is going to change. Um, and, you know, okay, England can't take X amount of Syrian refugees. It, in all honesty, it's not like any other European country is going to take any anyway. You know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, they're still shutting their borders down even though the EU tells them not to. You know, so I, I don't, I don't think that's going to change anything. Gotcha, gotcha. Before we let you go, can you offer some uh, parting words of wisdom or advice to our listeners as far as trying to get more literate in uh, the global economy or American economy or politics in general? Like, where does one start? It's like, you know, you talked a little bit about in your PhD, in your studies, you learn how to learn, right? 
and yeah, and it's like an elephant that you're trying to eat one bite at a time. What should be the, the first bite be? If there's a book that you could give your kid, let's just say, what would it be? Uh, I'll say this, and I'm I'm very adamant about this. Not only again with with uh, Muslims, uh, but with my non-Muslim students and non-Muslim students, you can't cheat scholarship, right? I know with the information age and the ease of information that you can go on the internet, read a couple things, see a couple videos, and all of a sudden you have an entitled opinion. Uh, you know, scholarship and knowledge, it's work. You know, the stuff that I know about economics isn't because I read the New York Times this morning, right? It's because when you go into a PhD program, again, they break you down. You're not, you know, you, you think you're going into graduate school like you know something and they basically you go down to the most elementary level of things and you really understand it like really understand it and then you can start looking at complex ideas and it takes you know it takes years it's the same thing from from friends of mine who are you know scholars of you know the different islamic sciences you know all of them i know that i've studied even again if i disagree with them they all basically have the same view as I. They're, Look, I have my opinion, but there's other points of view. And the reason why they know that is because they know how much time these scholars have spent studying. And they know that, look, they believe that because they, they're smart too and they've read the same books and I respect it. So you can't cheat scholarship. You really can't. You can't, you know, I, I could say, okay, go to Muslim Money Guide and, and read the articles, you know, from myself and all the other great writers there. That's great. Don't read any article I write and then go around quoting it as if it's, you know, if it's divine law here. It's just my opinion. Um, so I always say start start small. You know, start, you know, reading one book at a time or just understanding something very simple. If you can understand something very simple very well, you automatically leaps and bounds behind everyone or, 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 than everyone else. As far as a book goes – if you already know a lot about conventional finance, so you understand the housing market and you understand bonds and stocks and how those markets work, I, uh, there's a book, again, uh, by Mahmoud El-Gamal uh, called Islamic Finance, I think, Theory and Practice or Law and Practice, which is really good, really, really good. Uh, if not, uh, one that I think is still approachable is Islamic Economics, A Short History, that's a very good book. Uh, it gives you a little bit of, of leeway. If you're into the historical, uh, the historical side of, of, uh, of you know the kind of pre-capitalism Arabia and stuff like that. There's a good book by Gene Heck called uh, Islam Incorporated. Very good book. Uh, and he's got a number of books. He's not Muslim, but he's got a number of books about what the Arab world was like and what was the economic system and situation. Uh, of of the Jahili Arabs and and the Muslims at the time, you know, very very. So Islam Incorporated is very good, and and there's a number of others. But I think I think you know again, start small. And and when it comes to the Islamic finance stuff with loans and all that, if if the first thing really to do, I, I say this now, is understand. Don't start looking at Sharia compliant mortgages if you don't understand conventional mortgages. You know, start with what's going on in the world and then start reading about, you know, Islamic finance and, and the whole debate. If you just look at the debate and you don't know what's going on in the real world, you're going to get lost. 
you're going to get lost. I mean, I know this stuff, and I still get lost. Okay, very cool. Hey, Jerry, appreciate you coming on the show today. Um, if we come out to Philly, we expect you to take us for some Halal Philly cheesesteak, and we'll reciprocate it with some uh, stuffed pizza out here. Um, is there any – what's the best way to get in touch with you? Are you on social media? I know you've got a yeah. podcast. This is not your first show. Um, my friend Omar Osman, he's had, you know, he's run a podcast called Debt Free Muslims. I think you were on there with uh, Adam Tofik yeah, a couple Omar, years ago. Omar. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I was on, I was on Debt Free Muslims. I, I've, I've gotten Omar out here in Philly uh, a couple of times. He's good people. If you can run into Omar, tell him what's up. I, I just saw him. A few, I just saw him about a month ago in Dallas. Um, do you have an online presence or any? What's the best way for pe- people to reach out to you? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm. I'm too old to get on Snapchat. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I know. Uh, uh, you know, Mufti Abu Layth is is on there. He's a, my my very good friend, Imam Mark Manley. He's he's rocking it on uh, on Snapchat now. Uh, I'm on. I mean, I'm on Twitter. I, I, I'm not really active on Twitter. I, I tried that for a while. I guess I'm getting too old for that too. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can friend me. That's totally fine. I'm boring. I just post pictures of my kids. <laughs> uh, and, and complain about things uh, or really the best way is you can email me uh, jhionis at gmail.com I'll do my best to get back to you uh, that's the best way you can either hit me up through Facebook or yeah, hit me up through uh, through email and what about finding your works online what's that what about finding like some of your writings and your works online uh, oh. the best for, for the for the for the stuff that I write especially in regards to Muslims and, and things that I wrote specifically for non-academic audiences, non-academic Muslim audiences, is on uh, muslimmoneyguide.com. Uh, you can find a number of things there. Awesome. Uh, and, and, I mean, the academic stuff, don't worry about it. Uh, it's not that interesting. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that, that's the stuff that I, and I try to uh, put it up there as, as much as possible. And if you can find it, I think Joe has, has also put on there a three-part piece I wrote about uh, uh, Muslims and, and Marxism. What we can take and what we can't take. Joe Bradford, you're referring to, right? Yeah, Joe Bradford. Joe Bradford, my the Sheikh of Sheikhs. <laughs> uh, you know, Joe Bradford. So, so, if, you, if you can talk to him, he's he's better advice than I am. I tell you that much. It's funny because you mentioned that because that's how I found you. Somebody, I think Sheikh Yusuf Rios, who's my teacher at yeah. Maliki Fik, asked him or something about like, hey. Hey Joe, Shake Joe, can you talk about Brexit? And he referred your name. I was I never heard of you before. I was like, who is this dude? Let me hit him up with a Facebook message. So, you know, Shake Joe's giving you free PR. So that's how we found you instead of him. <laughs> so that, that's kind of the story how we actually So Mamluk Nation, that's what we do. We get the subject matter experts on here no matter what. It's not just our buddies. <laughs> Joe is he's a brilliant he, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, he knows you know when when we write you know, stuff together. And when we talk, I mean, you know, he, when it comes to Islamic law and the opinions, I mean, he knows them backwards and forwards and, uh, and he knows all the main players. I mean, uh, and I got, I got him out to the area too, to, uh, to talk about, uh, Islamic finance and stuff like that. And he's, he's such good people. Uh, and I'm, I'm very blessed to, to, to know him. Uh, yeah. And he, <laughs> he dropped my name. Well, hey, it, it was a pleasure having you on the show, and yeah, man, it was awesome. There's so much to deconstruct, and we'd love to have you again sometime. And uh, you know, absolutely, we, we thanks for coming on. To our listeners out there, if there's any comments or questions you have, you can email us at themadmumlukes at gmail dot com. That's T H E M A D M A M L U K S. You can also follow us on Twitter at themadmumlukes or like our Facebook page. We're also on Reddit, so you can engage us there 
at the Mad Mom Luke's. You can also please subscribe to us on iTunes. We don't ask for a lot. Subscribe to us. Rate us five stars. Please rate us five stars. We don't ask for much. <laughs> for uh, Dr. Jerry Hyonis, Sheikh Amr Saeed, Sim, this is Mahim signing off for the Mad Mom Luke's. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.